Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 149 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the British Airways episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that once upon a time, on August 1st, 1990, there was a British Airways flight between London and Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, which was captured by Iraqi forces. And this British Airways flight would be. Flight 149. And with that little bit of 1990s British Airways flight information, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us from California and L.A. region, our resident Sony employee. Tim, uh, that would be me. Awesome. How you I doing, think. sir? Uh, good, 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 good. Can't, can't complain. Uh, I'm in the Halloween festive spirit. I guess I got the got the the Halloween lights strung up around the outside window. I well, I you know I try to get like a really cool orange or red light bulb for the lamp, and it's like one of those party dance club lights that revolves, and it looks more like I'm celebrating Cinco de Mayo instead. Nice. So basically, what you're saying is that your decorations can now pull double duty. That is See, true. That, I mean, that, is, I, that is a cost-saving measure. In, indeed, I, it can just stay Cinco de Mayo all year long, and you know I'm supporting something, I guess. <laughs> there you go. Be it Hispanic heritage, uh, beer companies, or Halloween. Yes, See, that's, that is the, true. Yeah. There you go. Uh, but other than that, I am I am good. I'm good. How are you doing? It sounds like school is getting the better of you this past yes, week. Yes, school is definitely kicking my ass at the moment. Uh, but I was able to have a um, a nice weekend, uh, at least Saturday evening after work and Sunday evening after work. Spent a little bit of time with the fam on the back patio doing a little bit of grilling and beer drinking. Uh, Mr. Beer showed up and uh, gave me this case of beer that is called Mike. It's it's made from Mike's Hard Lemonade and beer, an actual lager. And they call it Mike's Shandy, S-H-A-N-D-Y, Shandy. And while it is really overly sweet, as far as a lemon-beer combo, it's actually pretty good, so... Um, I've, I've been enjoying those. So and, whenever Mr. Yeah. Beer pops by, is he like Wilson from Home Improvement where he just pops his head over the, over the over fence? Over the proverbial fence, and, yes. Except I know what he looks like. And he does not say, Heidi ho neighbor. Yeah. What do you say? Like, I got your fucking beer. Actually, this time it was, you're a fucking hard man to get a hold of. I'm like, well, you know where to find me. And then he's like, well, come on, let's go. And I went out back, and he gave me the case of beer. That sounds so shady, though. I mean, I, <laughs> like, it's, what, it's really not. I don't know. What, I wonder what your children think. Dad's I, running I an illegal beer bootleg operation no, no, no. out of the backyard. If, if anything else, there's just a, an adult version of Santa who goes by the name of Mr. Beer. And he just gives all the good adults beer. <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, we have got just a complete metric ass ton 
of content to get to. And as you can tell, that is definitely scientific by converting ton with or combining ton with metric, which doesn't work. But or well. ass with metric. Exactly, exactly. And because um, you really don't want yeah, a ton so, of ass. <laughs> Indeed. So we should definitely get down into it. I am going to start real quick because we actually got a new Twitter follower. I checked the email box, so you, uh, which is, of course, the show at SLScast.com. We have a new Twitter follower. Uh, this is the Chia Pet Rescue. I actually checked out this website. It's actually kind of interesting. It's a bit of a nonsensical site, but the, fo- but the follower is pretty interesting because it's nonsensical, I guess. It's at Chia Pet Rescue, the official Chia Pet Rescue Twitter account. Saving one Chia Pet at a time. Uh, based out of Seattle, Washington. And uh, you can definitely find them over at ChiaPetRescue.com slash WordPress. Pretty interesting, weird stuff. But I liked it. So they followed us, and thank you for that. And of course, they're following us at the, uh, at the SLS cast on Twitter. So that's fun, and you can do that as well. Uh, but I understand that before we get to actual news news, Tim, you have... Uh, you didn't call it news of the weird. You called it news of the interesting... Yeah, I mean, it's it's news of the cool, I guess. You know, there are fans of multiple things out there that they will do anything to show their appreciation for what they are a mega fan of. You know, like people who love Star Wars, they'll name their kids either Luke or Leia, or their dog, they name him Chewbacca or Chewie or mm-hmm. anything like that. Um, but these people really love the Halloween films. This is from io9.com. Meet the horror fan who built and lives in an incredible replica of the Halloween house. This is written by Cheryl Eddy, and this is pretty interesting. And again, I mean, it kind of goes with the whole Halloween festive spirit here. Tucked into the woods near Hillsboro, North Carolina, is a house that might look like a quaint Victorian to most. Horror fans will instantly recognize it, though. It's a mind-blowing exact replica of one of the genre's most infamous dwellings, home base for Halloween boogeyman Michael Myers. This is no accident. It's the home of lifelong horror fanatic Kenny Capperton, who lives with his wife, Emily. The young couple were in the middle of house hunting when they took a trip to Southern California that included a stop at the Myers home, now a landmark in South Pasadena for its key role in the 1978 John Carpenter classic. Inspiration struck, and a dream that seemed pretty wacky at first became a reality, and a year and a half later, it's there. The Capperdons get their fair share of visitors year-round. But the Halloween season is obviously their busiest time. Ahead of the unholiest of spooky holidays, we caught up with Kenny Capperton to find out what it's like to live in that Halloween house. Kenny Capperton says, I never had this dream to live in a spooky house or anything. I've been a fan of Halloween and horror and weird stuff since I was a little kid. I told people jokingly that one day I'd like to live in the Michael Myers house. Interesting kid. But it never crossed my mind that I would actually ever get to do it. The real idea came in 2007 when I went to the world premiere of Rob Zombie's Halloween, and we were in the middle of house hunting at the time. I didn't go to Los Angeles that much, but when I did, I'd make a trip to South Pasadena to see the original house. When we got back, we... We're looking at pictures of the Myers house, and I got the idea, quote, why don't we try to build this house, end quote. We love the look of the house, not only that it was the Michael Myers house, but it was also the size we were looking for. 
and we love the architectural details. Immediately, I got on the phone with South Pasadena, the city, trying to find the blueprints. And the interview goes on from there. And they have pictures. Uh, again, this is from io9.com. Meet the horror fan who built and lives in an incredible replica of the Halloween house. And I bring this up because also this house is in Pasadena, close to me. But since we've been reviewing the Freddy Krueger films, Matt, I don't think I actually told you this or not, but the... 1428 Elm Street house is a real house just two streets up from me on 1428 Hennessy, and the house still virtually looks the same from the original film. I mean, it doesn't have the iron bars or anything, and it's actually a very attractive house, and the house where Johnny Depp gets massacred and is still right across the street, and it looks exactly the same. And I've heard of people that they're big fans of the Freddy Krueger movies that they would love to live in that house. Personally, I think that'd be pretty cool also because it's not as symbolic. It's not like the Amityville Horror House where you're going to be demonically possessed or anything. You just might get molested and then horribly murdered by Freddy Krueger. Now, Matt, is there a house that you would love to live in? Not only from maybe horror movies, but how about... Uh, any movies in general. I mean, there's you also have like The Shining Mansion. Maybe that'll count. Or maybe even a scary, spooky hotel or castle that you would find yourself dwelling. Well, okay. In terms of real-life hauntedness, I think it'd probably be cool to live in the Winchester house. But in terms of all the movie houses I could think of to live in, if if I'm not being limited to horror, then I would have to say probably Wayne Manor. Because... How the hell do you not live in a super huge-ass mansion with a bat cave underneath? Just saying. I wonder, though, if... I mean, because obviously there are houses that kind of look like Wayne Manor because they've, you know, for exterior shots and whatever they had to sure. use it. I, I think the actual most recent ones uh, is like a library in Chicago or something. It's either Chicago or London or something like that. But, sure. But, you know, there has to be somebody who would buy that house or buy that library, and then make the Batcave underneath it. Because <laughs> there are fans out there, uber fans, that they get home theaters put in their house, and people that are big fans of uh, like Pirates of the Caribbean or Star Wars or Star Trek, they make their movie uh, theater into like the bridge of the Enterprise or a pirate oh, yeah. ship. And people have done that with the Batcave. They've turned it into a Batcave with a replica Batmobile and all you know stuff like that. So... It could very well happen. You know, if you if the SLS cast becomes a thing, not saying that it isn't already. Sure, maybe maybe one day. Maybe we could just live. I would be content with just live doing a live cast from the Winchester house. That would probably be the coolest thing I could think of in terms of horror to do. That's actually not all that incredibly far away from where you are, but fun times nonetheless any place that somebody has gotten murdered is not really that far away from los angeles <laughs> <laughs> well no the, okay so the winchester house uh, are you familiar with it have you heard of it yeah okay well for those who are not familiar uh if you've ever heard of a winchester rifle or Winchester Ammunition, it is that Winchester house. The lady who was the widow of Mr. Winchester um, had been, she was heavily into psychics and was convinced that all of the souls who were killed 
by Winchester rifles would haunt her. And so she built this house so that she could confuse the spirits and successfully uh, negate their haunting. And she would throw lavish feasts for like, you know, 20 or 30 people who were supposed to be ghosts. And I mean, the servants ate incredibly well. And, but the house is like crazy. And the only stipulation was that she had to keep building onto the house to keep confusing people and stuff. And so you've got stairways that lead to nowhere, doors that go to open to walls. Some of them open to the outside to like 30 foot drops. And you can actually tour this house even today. And they do still add on to the house all the time. It's pretty cool. Um, yeah, and it's in uh, San Jose, California, so uh, pretty close to San Francisco and all that stuff. And actually, if you go on to Google and look up Winchester House, the blueprints are available if anybody out there is wanting to build a replica. I don't know why, but if you want to. You too can try to be haunted. All right, well, then that's going to conclude the fun news uh, of the interesting and move us to the real news. Does it not, sir? That it does. All right, then. Here we go, folks. It's the news. Okay, and first up for me, actually, I've got a series of, let's see, I've got Three quick ones, and then I've got two stories, or two sets of two stories that are tied together. So this will be kind of fun. This is the most news I've had in a while. Uh, first up, if you are into classic movies or quirky movies, Paramount has gone out of their way to create a YouTube channel just for you. They have actually, this is a, this is official. It's a verified account, and it's totally free on YouTube. It's called the Paramount Vault. Paramount Vault. Good Lord. Uh, they have a little over 100 movies on there. And while these are not the cream of the crop of Paramount's catalog, there are some really interesting films in there. So you can get things like Elizabeth Taylor's Elephant Walk, William Holden's World of Susie Wong, but you can also get... Um, like Martin and Lewis films, such as artists and models. And they do have um, horror films on there, uh, old science fiction stuff, as well as things like Masters of the Universe, but we won't talk about that. And it's just interesting. And I think that's really cool that you see a major studio, even if it's not all the best stuff, there's still interesting movies. And some people will like the campy stuff that's on there as well. But they're putting it out there for free. So whatever ad revenue they're going to generate from the from the from YouTube uh, will be fine for them because that negates them having to create DVD presses at you know three bucks at Walmart or whatever in the bin, and they also don't have to necessarily upgrade stuff to Blu-ray and everything. You've got a digital content for you, and it's free. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, then moving into an actual news story, we go to CNN.com. This comes to us by way of Emanuela Greenberg. Daniel Craig, quote, I'd rather slash my wrist than play James Bond again, end quote. Uh, starts off by saying, tell us how you really feel, Daniel Craig. After playing James Bond in the last four films of the successful franchise, including, including the forthcoming Spectre, the British actor told Time Out London he's ready to put the role behind him. Craig has implied as much in previous interviews, but this time he left no doubt when asked, quote, can you imagine doing another Bond movie, end quote. 
He responds, quote, Now, I'd rather break this glass and slash my wrists. No, not at the moment, not at all. That's fine. I'm over it at the moment. We're done. All I want to do is move on, end quote. Um, he also, he, he's been doing the role for 10 years. He started in 2006 with Casino Royale, and he has definitely moved on uh, since then. I will say, though, I mean, he he will he, he's not closing it out completely. He's basically said at this point he only he's only going to do it if the money's right. I mean, he, he just and I kind of hope they all come back just for one more because I think it'd be really cool to get twenty five movies in. I mean, you've gotten so close to a quarter number that I think it'd be kind of nice just to round it out and close off the series. But he does say this because the article closes and yet this 47 year old actor did not completely close the door on the possibility when asked if he really wants to quote, move on from bond for good end quote. He says, quote, I haven't given it any thought for at least a year or two. I just don't want to think about it. I don't know what the next step is. I've no idea. Not because I'm trying to be cagey at the moment. We've done it. I'm not in discussion with anybody about anything. If I did another bond movie, it would only be for the money end quote. So there you go. Um, he's not saying no completely. He's saying you would do it for the money, but I think given another uh, couple of years, um, I think we could get one more out of him. And then uh, finally, in other non-related news that I have, this is from GameSpot.com by way of Dan Audie. Resident Evil stuntwoman out of coma after crash details her horrifying injuries. Quote, just going to take it day by day, end quote. I don't know if anybody's been following this because Resident Evil is still making movies and or they're still making Resident Evil movies and people are like, what? They're still making these movies? Yes, because this is like the sixth one. However, they make money. They make money and much like the Freddy franchise. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, la- the last one was they said they were, Yeah, this, they said they were coming back for this last one and this was supposed to be it so this this apparently uh because it's called resident evil the final chapter so this is apparently like freddy's dead the final nightmare um so yeah it's supposed to close off the series however here is what is going on she actually made a post on uh facebook and this post was released by a friend through the life is savage website and it reads the following quote Two weeks in a coma, brain bleed, brain swelling, severed main artery in the neck, crushed and degloved face, several broken ribs, paralyzed arm, shattered scapula, broken clavicle, broken humerus, broken radius and ulna, with an open wound and seven and a half pieces of bone missing, amputated thumb, torn fingers, five nerves torn out of the spinal cord, not my funnest day on set, end quote. She um, collided with a camera crane while performing a motorcycle stunt. And there, if you go to the GameSpot article, you can actually see a picture that she posted at some other point. This is just a picture of her. Um, and judging by these injuries, I do not think she is going to look like she did in this photo. The key word there being degloved face. I don't know if you've ever heard of the term degloving, but it's usually revolved around when someone gets their finger 
uh, with a ring caught in something and the, and the ring catches, but the force of your body, um, removes your, removes the rest of your body from the skin of your finger. They call that degloving. And so you're sitting there staring at the bone and muscle of your finger and maybe what's left of the tendons, but all the skin is gone. And that happened to her face. So not only do we have that, it just this just kind of goes to show how dangerous stunts really are and how much people take stunt people, how much the general movie-going audiences uh, take stunt people for granted. Even under the best of conditions, even when everything's going right and they're doing all the things they're supposed to be doing, things like this can still happen. So... I really hope that she pulls through completely, and quite frankly, I hope that she pulls through enough that she can actually continue being a stunt woman. Because holy shit, would that not be like one of the most baddest ass stories ever? Um, so, Tim, on what we have covered so far—questions, comments, concerns, things to add, nothing, just moving along with what you have, or what? The only thing that I have to add to any of those is for the Daniel Craig thing, and. I guess I'm just an old-fashioned guy, and I, I can just picture my grandparents just sitting back saying, well, if you're not into the money, then just don't do it. Why do you have to publicize it? Why do you have to you know talk about it? And really, I lose interest in the guy as an actor. Like, yeah, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed him in Skyfall as well as in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. But he was doing the same thing with Girl in the Dragon Tattoo. Just holding out for more money and kind of taking his time with agreeing with it. And I, I really don't know where he stands right now. I know they're planning on shooting it in the next, uh, hopefully, I think sometime early next year or something like that. But um, I, I just don't like it when... They have to come out and say stuff like that. And I'm not talking about they have to lie and do... It's just... There's nothing wrong with not... Being super blunt about... You want to hold out for more money. It just doesn't come across as professional to me. But... I guess that's just not... Or I guess that's just... You know... An old-fashioned way of looking at it, I suppose. But that's pretty much it. Right on, man. Okay, well, what do you got for us? From Gawker.com... Victoria is an insane 138-minute movie filmed in one continuous take. This is written by Rich Jiswake, and this came out a couple days ago. One night in Berlin, a young woman from Spain meets a group of local guys while leaving a nightclub. She clicks with one of them, and so she decides to hang out with the group. Instead of being repelled when they attempt to break into a car that isn't theirs, she's enticed. They kick off a wild night that involves ominous drug dealers, heist, baby theft, peril at almost every turn, and more partying. And it's all captured in one single take. That's German director's Sebastian Schipper's Victoria in a nutshell. Per the official director's statement, the movie was filmed on April 17, 2014, between the hours of 4.30 a.m. and 7 a.m., the movie's tagline says it all, quote, one city, one night, and one take, end quote. Shipper claims that unlike other one-take movies like Birdman, his was done without any tricks or cheats. 
He and his cast spent about three months preparing their improvised film and then performed it twice before getting it right. On the film's genesis, Shipper said, quote, The first thought I ever had about this project was that I realized that in my life I would never rob a bank. And I didn't like that thought, end quote. That MO creates a vicarious thrill like no other. Usually people see movies because they'll never experience what they portray. Victoria is astonishing. Its frantic energy reminds me most of train spotting. Sterla Branth Grovens, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that, which I'm pretty sure I am mispronouncing that. Sterla's camera work is unbelievable. Shots are composed so well that they look like Groven spent time setting them up. Even though you just watched the camera swing and settle where it does, the fluidity is absurd. At one point, the camera switches places with the titular Victoria. The movie captures what one of those late-night post-club hangouts feels like. And the article goes on from there. Uh, the author of this article speaks to uh, Shipper, the director, and the star, Leigh Costa, who plays Victoria. And it's, it's pretty interesting. Again, this is from Gawker.com. Victoria is an insane 138-minute movie filmed in one continuous take. Uh, I don't know, Matt. Is this something that you'd be interested in checking out? Because it's a great talent to pull off something like this. Because it's not only the acting, but it's the directing, it's the camera work. Everybody on the technical side of it trying to keep up with the pace and keep it interesting. I mean, it's definitely an art form that's worth uh, exploring for these filmmakers. Because it's... I I, I don't know. I, I think the movie industry, especially with Gaspar Noe's a 3D pornographic movie that came out within the past month or so. They're experiencing with 3D porn with real movies. You know, that's one step, probably five steps further than uh, Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac. So I think this is a good way of exploring the art of cinema and film without having to go to such extremes as exploring sex and, and alternative lifestyles and, and whatnot like that. Well, then again, I guess this is an alternative lifestyle, but it seems much more entertaining and much more creative. What do you think? Do you have any comments on this? Well, first of all, eat your heart out, Birdman, and your pretend one take. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it seems interesting. I just fear that something this intricate will be viewed more as a gimmick than as an actual achievement. Now that's without having seen it, but I, I quite honestly don't know if I could do two hours and 20 minutes of just one continuous shot. Um, so I don't know, maybe one, maybe one of these days we'll end up tackling it somewhere down the line but that remains to be seen. Straight from the mouth of Matt. It might it might happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's see. All right, so next up for me comes to us from uh, a... Well, it's a world of Disney. I don't know if it's necessarily a wonderful world or a different world or some other kind of world, but here we go. First up from Marvel.com. And this uh, comes to us by way of Mark Strom. Uh, this is a Marvel Studios Phase 3 update. 
Now that Marvel, uh, now that Phase Two of the Marvel Cinematic Universe has officially reached its conclusion with the release of Marvel's Ant Man, we have new details on what to expect in Ant and Phase Three. It looks like the first, the actually the the second sequel up will be on uh, July 6, 2018, and that's going to be Ant-Man and the Wasp. And this is the sequel that will mark the first Marvel Studios film named after its heroine. But for everybody wondering, well, where the hell are they going now? Looks like this is where they're going now. Black Panther has now been moved up to February 16, 2018, and uh, Captain Marvel comes to us on March 8, 2019. And there's three more films coming up in... Uh, 2020 so this is where we're going we're finally getting to some interestingly less tiered superheroes with major theatrical releases but i think that now that they're really kind of at least at this point rounding out the major motion picture releases, I think we'll finally start seeing some more filtration coming to us uh, via Netflix, like with Marvel's Daredevil and all that kind of stuff, which I think is really good because while I am definitely still in the Marvel fan camp when it comes to their motion picture releases, I think that the dearth of all things comic booky and superhero-y um, being mitigated from the cinemas will be better in the long run to bring us more than just comic book and superhero movies. So yay for that. Uh, and then on the other side of the Disney coin, this comes to us from piratedthoughts.com by way of Michael Lee. Disney fight getting dirty over ownership to Princess Moana. Yes, a trademark troll is not something out of a Disney story, but a real-life villain. Disney is accusing a company of acting in bad faith and committing fraud to register a trademark for the name of its newest princess, Moana. As early as October 2013, Disney began pre-release publicity for its new animated film, Moana. Moana is Disney's first Polynesian princess, and the film will follow the journey of a spirited teenager as she sails the Pacific Ocean to complete her uh, ancestor's quest. The name Moana can be translated as a large body of water, but is a common name. Uh, film is set for release in November of 2016 and features Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Um... While Disney was quick to start the press for the movie, it wasn't quick to file for the trademark registrations. A company out of Florida called Epic Stone and or Epic Stone Group Inc. back in October of last year filed a trademark registration for the Moana mark to cover action figures, toys, and a whole bunch of other items. They have also done things such as filing marks for The Ugly Betty, The Alf, The Independence Day, and The Million Dollar Man. So basically what they're doing is as soon as they catch wind of a major company getting ready to trademark something, they immediately go in as fast as possible. And it seems in this case, they actually beat Disney to the punch and grab, and they just put the in front of it and then trademark that. So Disney is now, and, and they did legit legitimately beat Disney to the punch this time. Um, Disney, however, is now saying, look, this is clearly trademark infringement. However, um, Epic Stone is now is filing back saying, you know, hey, we have it first and you can't take it from us just because you don't like that we have it first. Um, they are now and they've even had they've even filed for extension 
of time to oppose Disney Moana registrations. Um, most people seem to think that those will probably ultimately be settled out of court and that Disney's probably going to pay it off. But there are other people who think that Disney's such a large company that they can actually afford to go into protracted litigation and say, fuck you to this company who is trying to take advantage. Now, Tim, my question for you is because I'm kind of a mixed bag here. Yes, this is pretty clearly just a trademark troll who is an evil cousin to the patent trolls that you may or may not have heard about in the news lately. But Disney being as big as they are, you would think that they would be smart enough to get all their trademarks and all their clearances done way before telling anybody about what the name of a movie was going to be or the name of a character. So what do you think, Tim, is... Uh, this little bit of comeuppance for Disney that they might have need, or is this um, just evil copyright troll and bad copyright troll and that's all? Regardless of what Disney titles their movie, it's still going to do so much better box office-wise than the other movie. So, I, you know, it's... I, I think... Oh, this isn't about them. This isn't about Epic Stone making a movie called The Moana. This is about them being able to license knockoff toys, knockoff anything with the name The Moana and get away with it. Yeah. Yeah, no, so, no, I got that. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think it's stupid. I mean, it's very, it's like what you mentioned about the patent stuff that's been in the news where all these uh, companies are buying up patents and once somebody invents something that remotely relates to that patent, uh, they just start suing people for shit tons of money. I think it's stupid. I mean, I hate that mindset. It's a it's a stupid mindset. It's the mindset of people, oh, I, I'm able to do it. It's because I can do it. Doesn't matter if it's good or if it's bad, but you know what? It's legal, and I can do it. And I, I hate that mindset. It's stupid, it's dumb, and it's very unfortunate for humanity that those people are alive. So that's what I feel about that. Okay, well, what else you got for us, sir? I'm going to go ahead and just wrap up my news with... Um, I came across one... Uh, it was just going to be two, but I have three small pieces here that are kind of interesting. First one here from Yahoo Movies. Remember how Frank Sinatra almost played Dirty Harry? I bet you never heard of it because I haven't heard of it until a few weeks ago. This is written by Gwen Watkins. Dirty Harry's vigilante police detective, Harry Callahan, is one of the defining roles of Clint Eastwood's career, but it was meant to be played by Frank Sinatra. In an interview for Alec Baldwin's podcast, Here's the Thing, director William Friedkin, who directed The French Connection and The Exorcist, revealed that he'd spent months developing the gritty 1971 crime drama with the crooner-turned-actor in mind. Quote, my producer, a guy named Phil D'Antoni, he and I were going to do Dirty Harry with Frank Sinatra, said Friedkin. And we had prepared that for about six months, and then Sinatra pulled out. And the project was dead. So we left and did the French Connection. End quote. And the article goes on from there. I think that's very interesting. I could not imagine Frank Sinatra as Dirty Harry. Matt, can you? I mean, personally, I think both Frank Sinatra and Clint Eastwood, they had that cool vibe to them. Like, you know, they're always cool whenever they're playing 
whatever characters or whatever actors. But when it comes down to it, Clint Eastwood is by far the better actor than Frank Sinatra. And also, <laughs> Frank Sinatra is the better singer than Clint Eastwood, as what he showed us all in Paint Your Wagon. True. No, I, yeah, I mean, could you just really imagine Frank Sinatra? Doobie doobie doo. Go ahead and make my doobie doobie day. I don't know. I just, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think it would just, I don't think it would work as well. <laughs> uh, anyway. No, that is pretty, that is pretty interesting though. Um, last pair of articles for me to close out all of the news together. Uh, and they're both related from theguardian.com by way of Mark Brown. This is regarding Christopher Nolan. Cinemas must drastically improve or lose audiences, says Christopher Nolan. Interstellar director tells festival audience about the importance of using real film as opposed to digital technology. All right, so I'm just going to break down this article here. Um, he says that this was he was uh, he, he was at he was speaking at the London Film Festival. And he was. Re- this was regarding the importance of using real film as opposed to digital technology. That includes cinemas still having projectors to show, for example, 70mm film. The, the, the bigger problem that cinema chains needed to address, he said, was, quote, for some reason it has become to- acceptable to say to audiences, we are providing this empty room with a TV in it and just watch a film. That has to change, and if it doesn't, forget film, forget digital. If that experience for the audience is not valued, people stop going. End quotes there. Um, He also echoes conversations that he had had with other filmmakers who say at the end of the day, you know, storytelling's the is the is the trump card and he of course relates he says no it doesn't because if story trump storytelling trumped everything then people would still be making radio plays and the simple fact of the matter is is that he he to me christopher nolan is starting to sound like the george lucas of film and and i and i am not trying to uh insult anyone's intelligence least of all christopher nolan's or george lucas's what i'm saying though is that they're both of these guys are so hardcore in their positions he start he's literally starting to sound like george lucas circa 2003 where he's saying digital is the way of the future and it's the only thing to do and i'm going to film everything in digital and we saw what happened with the prequels here we've got christopher nolan saying that film is the way to go and and you and you destroy the integrity of all that is film when you don't do it on actual on actual film there is a happy medium i think that the way that the cinema the way cinema is moving and evolving yes film film is falling somewhat to the wayside and i think that moves that i will be discussing a little bit more in detail in the next article like quentin tarantino doing 70 millimeter for hateful eight is good because it keeps that alive and it is important that good directors who have the pull and have the gravitas to be able to make great films on film can then do that and work with other places like being able to install 70 millimeter projectors back in in 100 different cinemas across the United States so that people can sit down and enjoy it 
But at the same time, digital has its place too. And I think that there is a happy medium and I think that there is a way to work it out so that you can have a digital concept but also still be able to appreciate film and music. And I really, really think that Nolan needs to, you know, maybe back it down just a little, just just a touch. So I, I don't know. But tying into that from the playlist, which is uh, blogs.indywire.com. Uh, this is uh, coming to us by way of Kevin Jaggernauth. Quentin Tarantino says 70 millimeter, the hateful eight will be longer than the digital version. Uh, again, tying in over the weekend, Christopher Nolan firmly weighed in on the analog versus digital debate and came down on the side of film stock, specifically praising Quentin Tarantino and his plan to first roll out the hateful eight and 70 millimeter only in select cinemas before opening the movie wide everywhere digitally. Now Tarantino has provided an extra incentive to see his Western in his preferred format. Tarantino told Variety, quote, The Roadshow version has an overture and an intermission and it will be three hours, two minutes. The multiplex version is about six minutes shorter, not counting the intermission time, which is about 12 minutes. So, what be, what change is being made? According to the director, it's in how certain scenes will be edited for television versus the big screen. I quote, I actually changed the cutting slightly for a couple of the multiplex scenes because it's not that. Now it's on Showtime Extreme. You're watching it on TV and you just kind of want to watch a movie on your couch. Uh, mid quote here the director said of the sequences that in the 70 millimeter version will breathe a little more in quote big long cool unbleaking takes end quote there so basically you're gonna get more of the cinematography you're gonna get more of the scope of the film when you see it in that regard and you're going and if you don't see it in digital then you will not get that but you won't feel it as much because as you see it in other forms of media then it's going to flow especially with a film that is this long um again he's also working to make sure that uh 100 100 cinemas get this so that people all around the united states will have a chance to actually enjoy the 70 millimeter version i assume there will probably be 70 millimeter transfers for those who don't get to go to the 100 theaters and we'll have some form or fashion of being able to enjoy that uh, on Blu-ray or what have you. As for me, I plan on finding the one closest to me and going to see it <laughs> here in Texas if it's at all possible. But Tim, I know you were desperately, I was, I was evil and sick and twisted and wrong and stole your article. So you want to, dis you want to discuss, let's talk. What do you think, sir? What's, what, what, what is your opinion on all of this? film versus digital nonsense and of course quentin tarantino extending his 70 millimeter cut i i think film versus digital is kind of stupid because it's not like hd uh what was it called uh it was the blu-ray versus the hd uh oh thing. um hd dvd yeah hd dvd I was about to call it, you know, the HD Blu-ray thing. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it, I mean, of course one of those was going to win. You know, it was like Laserdisc and DVD. Of course DVD was going to beat Laserdisc. Film cannot beat digital because digital is cheaper. A lot of kids that are in, uh, or yeah, a lot of uh, young people in, uh, uh, that want to make indie films, they're going to make indie films digitally because it's cheaper. 
film cameras are much more expensive. They're a little bit bulkier, and especially when you move up to 35 millimeter and and 70 millimeter. Well, I mean, if you were a you know a film student, you wouldn't. You'd probably just be doing 16 millimeter. But even if you wanted to finance your own movie, 35 millimeter is going to be so damn expensive. I think film is a beautiful thing. But I do not think it is the win-all, be-all. So there needs to be, like, the attitude of there being, you know, coexistence between the two. And I gotta say, whenever I saw Interstellar, I I didn't see it in 70mm IMAX, but I saw it on 70mm film at a 70mm theater in, in Westwood. It was, I think it was the Paramount Theater, I think. So it's a legitimate movie theater that knows how to run movies on film and i think i probably would have enjoyed the movie the same if not better in digital or you know so i i don't think it really matters all that much to me coming from christopher nolan however i'm very much looking forward to seeing the hateful eight in the 70 millimeter ultra panavision or uh, i forget what they're calling what he's calling it or what he's shooting it on but we have the Dome Movie Theater, which those of you who listen to the show, I always talk about the Dome Movie Theater, or I have talked about the Dome Movie Theater. And that theater was built for a movie called It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. And the reason why it was built for It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, because the movie was shot in the ultra wraparound you know, movie format, where it back in the day it took three different projectors to successfully project the screen and you're in a dome and the screen doesn't go you know up above you and around but it goes kind of around you a little bit and so it makes for a really cool and immersive experience now does that mean that every film that you watch will be better in that format hell no not at all but i think the hateful eight will be I think watching The Hateful Eight just even on a, on, a, on a legitimate IMAX screen will be amazing and it will be breathtaking because not only is it a really cool Western shot in beautiful locales and whatnot, but the person that is helming the film is a very talented and professional filmmaker who knows how to use the format to the best of his ability or to the best of its ability, uh, the best of the format's ability. So, in this instance, I'm really looking forward to seeing The Hateful Eight in IMAX, in glorious 70mm. So, that is what I think about that. Well then, I think that will definitely conclude our extended news, and bring us to... Was It Worthy? Oh, no, not the beast! Not the beast! Ah! Oh, my eyes! My eyes! Ah! Ah! <laughs> and this time on Was It Worthy, we're going to be covering Rosemary's Baby from 1968. And it is, of course, based on the 1967 novel of the same name by Ira Levin. This movie was written and directed by Roman Polanski. The movie ultimately went on to win... Uh, Best Adapted Screenplay and Best uh, Supporting Actress Awards at the 41st Academy Awards. And for those of you who are not in the know, this is the American psychological horror film. And it is about a young lady played by Mia Farrow who is pregnant with a baby and weird shit starts happening because, well, that's what happens when you give birth to the spawn of Satan. Um... 
Now, in terms of whether or not there th- these the, these awards were deserved, I have to take you have to first go back. Uh, Ruth Gordon was the winner for best supporting actress, and uh, if you don't remember who she was, she was Maud in Harold and Maud that we covered oh so many many moons ago. And she was up against such other actresses as Lynn Carlin from Faces, Sandra Locke uh, um, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, Kay Medford from Funny Girl, and Estelle Parsons from Rachel Rachel. The uh, best adapted screenplay um, was... uh, We had Lion in Winter... Uh, James Gordon, Vernon Harris, Oliver, Roman Polanski, Roman's ba- uh, Rosemary's Baby, Neil Simon, The Odd Couple, and Stuart Stern for Rachel. Rachel. Now, um, I don't know. I have to say that for me, on the Best Supporting Actress front, I think Ruth Gordon does do a fantastic job. Absolutely fantastic job. But I have actually seen The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, and I've actually seen Funny Girl. And for me, I think Sandra Locke did a much better job in her role as uh, Mick Kelly there. And so I personally don't feel that it was worthy in the Best Supporting Actress department. But... um, all of its Oscar attention that it got from the screenplay was definitely deserved. And I am also not a super huge Roman Polanski fan either. So short and sweet for mine, I'm going to say worthy for the adapted screenplay, but not for best supporting actress. What do you got there, Tim? I forgot how good this movie is and I'm really glad we covered it because I realized that I needed to add this to my Criterion collection the Criterion flash sale just recently happened and so I quickly snatched it up on Criterion blu-ray so I can have it because this movie is fantastic and this movie deserves much more recognition than it currently receives. It's not only an achievement in horror cinema but it's an achievement in cinema in general Everything from the storytelling and the performances were crafted so well. They stood the test of time. I mean this, the standing the test of time, quite literally, because with the exception of moments of the dated 60 styles of filmmaking, and moments, just moments of them, this movie could be virtually directed, acted, and shot frame by frame today, and the overall effect would still be firmly intact. From beginning to end, the film blends eerie creepiness with a consistent, demented style of humor. Roger Ebert wrote in his review of the film that, quote, Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby is a brooding, macabre film filled with the sense of unthinkable danger, end quote. And it's not until the final act of the film when you start to realize what possibly could be going on. But it's not until the final scene when you know for sure what is going on. Now you can say that it has a surprise ending, but unlike many other gotcha-style suspense horror flicks, Rosemary's Baby doesn't rely on that surprise. 
Like Polanski's other classic film with a surprise ending, which is 1974's Chinatown, both films are so well-crafted that they stand out as a whole and are remembered as perfect films. It was nominated, Rosemary's Baby, was nominated for two Academy Awards, Best Supporting Actress and Best Adapted Screenplay, and it deserved both, plus more. Now, when looking for the overall best of anything, I keep an eye out for the little things, the details. Ruth Gordon, who played Minnie Castavet, embodied every detail that I wanted to see out of a supporting character. She gave Minnie these characteristic tics and mannerisms that only a well-versed thespian would be able to accomplish successfully and it even being noticed on the screen. And it doesn't just stop there. All the actors achieve this, especially Mia Farrow, who gives an equally nuanced performance. One that, in my opinion, towers over most, not all, but most of those who were nominated in the Best Actress category. The performances felt natural and the conversations looked and sounded organic. Yet only Ruth Gordon was recognized for her supporting role, and Roman Polanski's adapted screenplay was nominated, but lost to James Goldman's good but lesser-in-quality adaption of The Lion in the Winter. So based on that, guys, I think this movie deserves a whole lot more praise and attention than it currently does. And again, not just for it being a great standout horror film, but just a great standout film in general. Because it means a lot when your film is so organic and so natural feeling that it feels like the characters or the actors are the characters and the director isn't superimposing on the film. Rosemary's Baby is great. Deserved, if not more wins, which I think it does deserve the best adapted screenplay Oscar, it definitely deserved to be nominated for more than it did. So, that's what I think. Right on, right on. Okay, well that concludes our edition of Was It Worthy? For the recap there, Tim definitely feels it was worthy of what it was nominated for and won. I feel that it was worthy only for its adapted screenplay nomination. Um, And of course, Tim is tacking on and thinks it's actually worthy of more than that. Uh, next week for our bonus segment, we are going to be doing one we haven't done in a long, long time. We're going to be bringing back I'm the Only One Who Liked It. So we'll be doing that next week. And without further ado, I believe that brings us to... The Movies! This week's movies, we've actually got five movies we're doing this week. One, we've got Sicario, and then we have the last of the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And these are specifically the non-canon films, if you will. We have Wes Craven's New Nightmare, then Freddy vs. Jason, and the remake-slash-reboot of A Nightmare on Elm Street from 2010. We're also going to give you our little closing thoughts on Never Sleep Again, The Elm Street Legacy, which is a four-hour documentary available on Netflix that covers the first eight movies. It does not cover the remake, but it covers one through six, New Nightmare, and Freddy vs. Jason. So do we want to do like we did last week, Tim, and start off with the non-Nightmare movie? Or do we want to end with the non-Nightmare movie this week? 
I don't know. I mean, I would think we should start with the non-nightmare movies so we're not completely exhausted by the time we get to it. Okay, sounds like a plan. Then we will start with Sicario, the 2015 version. Apparently there was one like back in 1995 or something. So this is uh, Sicario 2015, American crime thriller directed by Dennis Villanueva and written by Taylor Sheridan. Film stars Emily Blunt, Benicio Del Toro, and Josh Brolin. This is about a woman who is a member of the FBI, she's like SWAT, and her name is Kate Macer. She is a 100% go-getter. She has been doing nothing but field work for a long time. She has a very trusted partner who is a very smart guy. He's a lawyer uh, who turned into an FBI agent. And she is recruited uh, after a devastating find in the war on drugs, as it were, in Arizona. She is recruited to go and work with a, um, shall we say, top secret under wraps (laughs) uh, division of the government tasked with creating equilibrium for the drug war so that uh, the U.S. can maintain some kind of stagnation and we'll we'll leave it at that for me i i I made no bones about this movie with tim when we were talking about it beforehand i i truly felt this this is the kind of movie that's been done in any way shape or form oh wow is there really is there really violence on the mexican border oh wow do do the mexican cartels really do this kind of stuff oh look is the government not doing everything it should be doing either at all or when it does, is it not doing it the right way? Oh, look. Um, and this movie does the exact same thing. It it does not change anything, and it is 100% formulaic in that regard. Now, before Tim has a brain aneurysm, I do not hate this movie. Just just so breathe. Woosah, woosah. And know that while... This is this brings absolutely nothing new to the genre of this style of thriller or the subject matter that it contains. This is still a very, very, very well-acted thriller with excellent cinematography. And on another technical note that I thought was just something subtle and brilliant, really good lighting. I mean, just the lighting elements and the way that they use it in concert with the cinematography and as they use it to set up scenes and have things that take place and just certain fade ins and fade outs in the way. And especially one complete combat scene in and of itself, just brilliantly executed. The problem for me though, is that beyond this amazing acting and this amazing way of having storytelling take place. Oh, pardon me as I knock my microphone around. I just really felt that it was wasted in this. I felt that if you're going to tell this kind of a story, then could we please not could we please not just have it say the exact same thing over and over and over again? Um we get it already. 
And it wasn't preaching. And, and again, I, I don't want to mischaracterize it. This is not, this film is not preaching at you by any stretch of the imagination. But I just really feel like they could have told this story in a much, much, much better way. So, at the end of the day, brilliant acting, brilliant cinematography, great lighting on a technical element, but just could not have cared any less for this story. 3.75 out of 5. What do you got there, Tim? Well, that's not that bad. <laughs> well, that's a good thing don't, you like the cinematography. <laughs> uh, because director Denis Villanueva, he also did Prisoners uh, and Enemy, which we talked about in great length uh, not too long ago, some months back. Well, Denis Villanueva is now going to be directing the sequel to Blade Runner with Harrison Ford. And... His cinematographer is the same cinematographer from Sicario. His name is Roger Deakins. And this guy is absolutely brilliant. An older gentleman who knows absolutely everything about the art of doing fine cinematography for films. And I absolutely cannot wait for the sequel to Blade Runner. And I never thought I would ever say that in a million years but I think this movie solidified it due to Roger Deakins' cinematography as well as Denis Villanueva's uh, direction. Because director Denis Villanueva really knows how to bring an audience into a movie. He's a master at establishing a mood and a presence. And it's, it's fantastic. He can grab the audience by the gut. Like he'll reach into your stomach and just hold your hold your insides until the film is over, or maybe not necessarily until the film is over, but until he is ready for you to relax and to feel at ease. So not necessarily by the end of the movie, because I don't want you to think that from the from start to finish it's super tense because it's not. But there are about three set pieces without giving anything away where. It has a build-up, and it starts, and you're on the edge of your seat, and then you have your breathing moment. That's, I guess, putting it lightly in some way. So, the execution of this film made for an entertaining and absorbing experience. Now, the absorbing experience is somewhat on par with Prisoners, the Hugh Jackman, Jake Gyllenhaal movie about the, uh, the child kidnapper, murderer. And the movie did have the thought-provoking aspect in the layers to it that Enemy had. However, it was more so on the absorbing experience, entertaining experience, like Prisoners, Sicario had, more so than the thought-provoking layers that Enemy had. But there's definitely, it does give you food for thought without being overly preachy. And I think that's why I thoroughly enjoyed this movie it's not absolutely perfect, but it is damn near perfect. I give this one 4.75 out of 5 because I, I just can't give a movie where it's like... Uh, uh, uh. So 4.75 out of 5 for Sicario. Go check it out. There you go. Okay, so now we go back into our Nightmare movies. Can I ask you something? Certainly. Who gives a fuck what you think? Welcome to Wonderland, Alice. 
is the ultimate nightmare. Freddy's, Freddy's way sociable. He's Freddy's a party fun. animal. Freddy rocks. Like Freddy's like addicting and you you know it gets better and better each one. The scariest movie I've ever seen in a long time. I, I don't think I'll sleep tonight. Elm Street, USA. Nice homes. Nice cars. And nice kids. Only problem is these nice kids are terrified by not so nice dreams. And we are going to be starting off with 1994's Wes Craven's New Nightmare. This is, of course, a 1994 American slasher metafilm, written and directed by original Nightmare on Elm Street creator Wes Craven. And this is not a sequel. This is kind of like a... I don't want to say a reimagining, necessarily, but basically kind of a way to address from a filmmaker's perspective what happens once you've created something that takes over the world as 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 freddy has done and definitely did at the time the movie brings back heather langenkamp and robert englund and then gives us the wonderful miko hughes because you know it was like that miko hughes he's so hot right now you know he's fresh off of you know boys have penises and girls have vaginas in kindergarten cop moves on to do things with like bruce willis and whatever um so whatever um i think that in the intervening years between nightmare on elm street 3 and new nightmare heather longenkamp did finally get some acting classes because she's actually convincing for the most part in this film uh she does do some uh she does fall back into some old routines, but overall, this is definitely the best thing I've ever seen her in. And what we have here in... What? What? What's so funny? Uh, it, it's funny because I don't think she really did anything else. Well, I wasn't going to point that out blatantly, but I kind of figured that this was the only thing she'd ever done. No, no, wait, no, no. She comes back for Never Sleep Again because she's actually the narrator. So we have that. We have that to look forward to. She she was really good as the narrator. All she had to do was read. Anyway, um, all right. So what we have here is now Heather Longenkamp playing kind of a version of herself. And we now have a more kind of twisted, darker, demonic version of Freddy that invades. And... This is, of course, balanced by the fact that we're seeing Robert Englund in real life. We're also seeing, of course, Wes Craven and all the discussions we see, you know, where New Line is at at this point in the uh, 90s and and what have you. And it's a very good introspective film in terms of how how characters discuss 
themselves, uh, how people relate to their characters in real life. There's a great scene, and they touch on it in the documentary as well, where you see um, Robert Englund and this huge throng of people just begging for autographs. And then across the hall <laughs> is Heather Longenkamp just waiting there, standing there, checking her watch, and nobody wants to talk to her. <laughs> Um, so, so they definitely do touch on a lot of cool themes and stuff. Um, I, I thought that it was also really cool that they brought in a darker version and a slightly different version of Freddy that they were able to introduce. And yet they still paid homage to the first film. All that being said... It's a, it is a very decent movie, and in terms of what we've seen so far is, uh, is definitely the best outside of Nightmare on Elm Street 3. It's, it's, and up to this point, is the most rewatchable. However, it's still patently 90s, and while I definitely give Wes Craven a lot of credit for coming up with a new twist on this formula, that is definitely exposing a way that filmmakers look and treat their and treat their work, which is something he touches on in the documentary. Um, I got to land on this one at 3.5. So there you go. What do you got, Tim? Here's a Freddy movie that's more clever than it is scary. While watching all these films back-to-back, it's been interesting to witness its progression from horror to popcorn gimmickry. And it's so apparent how much of a letdown that Freddy's Dead The Final Nightmare was for the fans that Wes Craven didn't hold anything back in New Nightmare. As he takes numerous jabs at the previous entries as well as the commercial hype of the Freddy Krueger character. So it's definitely cleverer than the previous three flicks, and almost as original, almost as original as the very first Nightmare on Elm Street. Because, I mean, you gotta say that the first Nightmare on Elm Street is pretty damn original, despite what you think of the movie as a whole. But Wes Craven took a series that had seemingly surpassed the point of no return, with its silliness that the only way for there to be any justice done for the original film, a fresh take needed to be had. And that's what we got. Something so different and out from left field that in 1994, at least, the very idea of a real Freddy Krueger was scary again. This is why I appreciate the movie. It's not perfect, but I definitely found it more enjoyable and true to Wes Craven's original film. However, there are a number of things that either didn't stand the test of time or just didn't fit within the context of the movie. Craven did one too many unnecessary throwbacks to the first film. For example, a portion of Heather Longenkamp's hair turning gray, just like Nancy's did in the first film. Was it necessary? Uh, I don't know. They brought actors and crew members as actors back from the original film and who played themselves. For example, producer Robert Shea played himself as well as Wes Craven played himself. But their performances are not good. At least in 2015, they're not good. This might be a case of the idea of dabbling in the self-reflexive genre is more effective than the execution of it on the screen. But hey, it does say something when non-actors in this movie performed on the same level as many of the real actors did in the previous movies. That's a fact. 
But I think when it comes down to it, my sole overall complaint is that many of the moments that were very effective in 94 aren't very effective today. For example, the scene when Heather finds out that the conversation she just had with Wes Craven is a scene that Wes Craven had already written for the movie within the movie. So it's revealed that Craven more or less controls the story that's actually playing out. When stuff like that happened, it felt forced. Another example of that is when John Saxon, who played Nancy's father in parts one and three, when he's introduced as Heather's real-life father figure, he just kind of shows up in the movie, and unless you were familiar with their character's relationship, you wouldn't really have much to go off of. That relationship needed to be set up better and not just taken at face value in order for that particular father-daughter dynamic to be used again. New Nightmare also offers up a lot of intrigue and a fair amount of excitement. This installment clocks in around 110 minutes, making it the longer Freddy film, but I was never bored. Some of the scenes that have stuck with me since I first saw it 20 years ago that still work today, and some examples of those are uh, the scene from the original when the character of Christine gets dragged all over her bedroom, up the walls and across the ceiling, In this film, it gets an even more brutal and highly effective redo with the character of Julie, who happens to be Heather's friend. Again, another friend of hers gets brutally murdered like this, but it's a great scene. Very effective and super creepy with with the addition of the little kid there that is trying to help her, but obviously cannot. Uh, Another example of a very effective scene is the now super dated looking highway scene when they're running through the highway traffic uh, with the only convincing wow shot of Heather is when she's dunking underneath a tanker truck as it swerves right over the top of her. Another scene is one of the scenes or moments from the final act of the movie, which in my opinion, they should have expanded more on is when John Saxon turns into the character of Nancy's father and the exterior of Heather's house turns into the original 1428 Elm Street house. And it's at that moment when Heather accepts this as her reality. And that is when Freddy can finally come out from within the bed. And to piggyback off that, I love how the bed acts as the portal into Freddy's dwelling. It creates excellent imagery. And something that is worth mentioning here are the two moments that I was most frightened of at the age of six or seven when I first was introduced to this movie. And again, this is the first one I was introduced to before I saw any of the other movies. But the two moments that I that frightened me the most as a six or seven-year-old is Freddy's long tongue and him fitting the little boy's head into his mouth. It, it just gets me every time even thinking about it. I just remember watching it, and it gave me nightmares. But lastly, New Nightmare is, for the most part, a solid and enjoyable addition to Wes Craven's catalog of noteworthy films. It captures everything that we love about him, like the idea of childhood innocence represented in the form of a stuffed animal that got slashed by Freddy, yet it can still be repaired. This is the kind of thought and intellect that makes Craven a smart filmmaker. He textures his films with these thoughts. It's in full form a new nightmare, though it might not have aged 
all too well. And I give this one 3.5 out of 5 as well. Okay, well then, moving on, we now fast forward nine whole years to 2003, where we finally get the <clears throat> the the matchup to end up all matchups here. Freddy versus Jason. It's the American slasher action film. It's directed by Ronnie Yu. It's a crossover, of course, between Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street. Basically, Paramount finally blew their option to hang on to Friday the 13th. So, New Line was able to get the rights after it reverted. Uh, we have uh, Ken Kissinger, I believe, who is who is not our, the, the normal Jason playing Jason. You've got Robert Englund, then you've got Monica Kina, Kelly Rowland, uh, Jason Ritter, Chris Marquette, and Lachlan Monroe. Um, all right, so it's been a long time since it's been... Uh, 12 years basically since we've had an, a, a Nightmare on Elm Street movie proper and we're not counting Wes Craven's new nightmare because it does not exist within the Nightmare on Elm Street universe it's supposed to be its own standalone thing well, it's kind of a crossover in reality um, and Freddy's in hell and basically he has combed the annals of hell until he came across Jason, figured out what he was all about and then uses him to confuse the kids of today into thinking that Freddy's back so that they'll talk about Freddy, reinvigorate Freddy and then now Freddy can come back into nightmares and do his thing. Um, I thought that while... I thought that they did a a good job in terms of blending the two universes. And it's just that despite the fact that I feel that they did a good job of blending the two universes, uh, the film is exceptionally dated. Um, you know, glow sticks, rave scenes, and corn peels, the whole, the whole nine yards. Um, but I felt that they really did have a pretty good finger on the pulse of the youth for the day. I actually went and saw this movie in the theater. And, it, I mean, it was fun. I remember everything fun. Looking back on it, it's aged okay. The biggest problem, though, is that as fun as this idea was, sometimes things are just better left as ideas. And when you finally get to the big culmination scene... um. I mean, they definitely give as good as they get. It's kind of a draw, really. But I don't think it needed an an 82-minute buildup for six minutes of fight. I think that there could have been a lot more done in terms of them going rounds with one another that could have been better integrated, which would have then made the universe crossover uh, make a little bit more sense but this was really more or less done just because i think they knew they could get people to come and see it and in terms of slasher it was slashery in terms of boobage there's boobage for the slasher side and in terms of nightmares well you got some fun with freddy too um so i, I walk away pretty even on this one even looking back on it from the day i can say i liked it but just barely, and that's all. So three stars. Yeah, I definitely don't like this movie now, uh, post when I first saw it, whenever it came out. It is very 
2000s. I mean, it is boobs galore. I mean, until the movie finished, the only note I had was boobs. Because everything you remember from the late 90s or, well, mainly, I guess mainly early 2000s uh, teen movies, especially R-rated movies, is that every woman, everybody who's supposed to be the cute girl or the hot girl or whatever, they always had the perfect cleavage, the per- well, I mean, you know, you know what the generic perfect cleavage and the perfect boobs. And that's really all that was there. Not really a personality. And I'm not saying that the the actress, the lead actress or any other actress here had any personality. But it, it it's just, I mean, on top of it, Freddy vs. Jason had a very, very poor script. And it's kind of amazing because with... Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, Peter Jackson turned in a turned in a screenplay for that one. So we could have had a Peter Jackson Freddy Krueger movie. Well, you think somebody might have wisened up, but Robert, uh, what's his name? Robert Moore? I wrote it down somewhere, but I can't. Uh, oh yeah, Ron Moore of Battlestar Galactica fame, the newer Battlestar Galactica, he turned in a script as well. But it's not what they were looking for, so they wanted something more in line with the original franchises. So this was their, this is what you kind of got. And at first, when the movie first starts, it's kind of fun, it's kind of entertaining, and you can tell that they were trying to really stick with the the spirit of the Freddy Krueger movies. But the issue is that it's not a Freddy Krueger movie, it's a Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees movie. So then they were trying to figure out how to, well, how can we make both movies at the same time, or try to make both movies, or put both movies together, when really what they should have done was created a a movie that was unique and its own thing. I'm not going to compare this to The Avengers, but I'm going to compare it to The Avengers. The Thor movies have their own unique feel to it. Iron Man has its own unique vibe. Put them all together, it has its own unique vibe when they're all together. Something different from all the other movies. And I know we're just talking about Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees, but this was something that a lot of the hardcore fans of the two characters are really, really anticipating, looking forward to. And they it just kind of sound like, based on the documentary, that they buckled under pressure. Because what I really missed from the Freddy movies is the fantasy aspect to them. This was way too much like an action movie, and it doesn't really complement either franchise whatsoever that action was too easy of a choice honestly it kind of felt like a cop-out in a way and it needed to be more unique i guess a good thing to say about it is that it could have been much worse you know they kept the spirit of both characters like i said the writing is just bad the writing was sacrificed for boobs and sound bites and that was another thing sound bite like whenever you see a trailer, you know, you have those bits of dialogue that is in the trailer. So you will, it'll stick in the viewers in the audience's head, you know, to get their attention to come and see the movie. You know, like the whole welcome to my nightmare, Freddy, go to hell. Welcome to my world, bitch. You know, just stuff like that. Just worse and felt more out of place than all the other Freddy Krueger movies. Because with Freddy Krueger saying it, it's kind of fun and more entertaining, and it was definitely more enjoyable. This was just weird. 
yeah, it was just more comedic than effective, underwhelming. All the subliminal sex talk that makes up a early 2000s movie. Um, that guy is in it, who played the new young cop guy. And that's when you know you're watching a late 90s, early 2000s movie when that guy is in it. And then also, lastly here, they did a lot of like getting hit and flying across the room. They really did justice to that stuntman, I must say. His work was excellent because you saw a lot of it. <laughs> Yet, I didn't absolutely hate it. I watched it. Kill time, 1.5 out of 5 for me. All right. Well, then that brings us to the final film in the series of actual movies, movies, before we talk about the documentary. A Nightmare on Elm Street 2010 film. This is the slasher film directed by Samuel Bear. It's written by Wesley Strick and Eric Heisler. And this is a remake of Wes Craven's 1984 Nightmare on Elm Street. Here we have the star is Jackie Earl Haley, and then he's playing Freddy Krueger. Um, we've got Kyle Galliner, Rooney Mara, Kate, uh, Katie Cassidy, Thomas Decker, and Kellen Lutz. This film, I feel personally, really just got a bad rap based on the fact that there were still too many fanboys who grew up on the original series and didn't realize how fucking retarded the bulk of the series had become in terms of its age and did not and just wanted to take out all their frustrations on a film that was made in the vein that Wes Craven originally wanted to make it He's actually a child molester this time, yay. He's actually darker in tone this time, yay. His one-liners, which still exist, are simply there to sub to basically give you additional subtext into his evil, dark sense of humor, which isn't funny, but can still, in a sick way, bring a bit of a smile to your face. The film recreates the original in a very updated formula the acting you can see acting the way people act now has just shifted and it does i mean it you look at the way people acted in the 30s is different from the way they acted in the 60s it's different the way they act in the 80s similar way they acted today that being said there's still some pretty cheesy acting in there it's not all sunshine and fucking gummy bears but Overall, the acting, I felt, was much, much better than the, in the original, and on par for the whole series, still pretty much better than anything the original series offered. Not 100%, but for the most part. I think that the nightmare elements that they used were much, much better. I thought that the way that they tied the story into getting the adults to own up to what happened was much, much better. And I like that they used nightmare elements to tell that story. The only major flaws that I had with this was really the uh, the ADR that they used on Freddy. I think that by using the ADR, where they also used some special effects to kind of alter his voice, it made Freddy and his sound and his feel very uneven. And so it was kind of hard to be appropriately creeped out um, because it was either too little or too much. And when it was too much, you could tell it was just all special effect talky. 
But laying it out on film, the scares were much more organic. And the way that the nightmares worked themselves out were also, uh, they removed the camp from them. But they still did a lot of things that were directly out of the original scripts uh, or from the original film. And by God, I was so ex- I was just, I was ecstatic by the time this one was over. This is not a perfect film. But in terms of what we witnessed and the evolution of the way horror has become, it's kind of like people are just like, you can't, you just can't remake it. This is just one of those things that you just can't touch. But I'm sure as fuck glad that they did. And I think for anybody who has never seen any of the original Nightmares, I would say start here and just enjoy. Um, I give this one 4.25. What do you got there, Tim? Oh, please don't watch this one first. At least watch the first two. And then and then maybe mosey on over to this one. I... I'm going to try to keep this one short and sweet because I just don't think this was a not, it's just not a good movie. There was just way too much special effects for it to be truly effective and truly haunting. The the first half of the movie is people acting tired and acting scared. There's a lot of acting happening uh, during the first half of the film. So I, I watched it this past weekend and I did something that I hate doing I can't say that I was live tweeting during it because I sent one tweet because I was so annoyed and just pissed off with this movie. 40 minutes into it, I said something along the lines of this. I mean, this is a piece of shit movie. It's not doing anything for me. It's, you know, it's, it's just bad. People are just acting. All it has is just visual flair to it, which, you know, from a technical side, it does have a very interesting visual flair to it. And like what Matt was saying, there are some very interesting story elements that take part during the second act, not during the first act. So once I tweeted that tweet, like literally once I put my phone down, the movie got entertaining and it started, it started going down a different path. When it just started focusing on two characters. I'm not going to say which two, but I guess just two characters. And once kind of the routine bullshit from the first movie happened, they decided to tell this other story. And that's when it started getting kind of interesting. And that is when they started bringing out those interesting story elements about the parents and about Fred Krueger himself to where you actually felt something you felt something different than what than what you would expect as the movie is going on and the good stuff is going is happening for i mean it's a hot 25 minutes i mean well, i guess it's maybe a good 25 minutes i guess but it's not really that long until the movie once you think it's going to be a fresh take on the original movie all of all of a sudden it ends up being the exact same thing just worse what made the original movie charming uh in its own way is the uniqueness of the film the use of the practical effects the effort that went into this movie yes the movie does look good and there are a couple scenes with good acting i just felt like that jackie Earl haley's freddy krueger was not utilized all that well when he is 
the the evil demonic Freddy Krueger. I thought what they did with him as the human Fred Krueger was very interesting, and I thoroughly I enjoyed that how all that stuff played out very much. Just the movie as a whole was very contradicting. I really didn't like it, but there were parts that I did enjoy. So I, I'm gonna I'll hit it on one point two five out of five. Man, I guess I should have just made this a five star movie to give it all I could get. <sighs> okay, so you say that as if I do that. No, I just didn't think you were. I mean, I I just can't see how you hate this movie so much. I mean, seriously, I just, I, I I'm just not getting it. Dream Dream Master did better for you than this. I just I'm, <laughs> yeah, like, totally. Okay. Well, it's it's the charming aspect. This movie doesn't have charm to it. The movie's not supposed to be charming. It's supposed to be a fucking horror movie. Yeah, no, I oh, got that, I know. but it's, it doesn't even succeed it's, it's, as a horror movie. It's charming. Yes, we should have, you know, it's not charming. That's the whole point. He's yeah. a fucking molesting motherfucker who comes back from hell to haunt you and kill you in your dreams. Yeah, uh, well, okay. There's nothing on, charming I, about that. Okay, obviously you're listening. I'm not saying <sighs> that the movie has, like, charming as an ooh, Freddy no, Krueger is a charming that man. No, you're saying Master was charming, which is why it got 1.75. I just, you know, versus 1.25. Well, no, I'm talking about, say, I mean, the first movie didn't really care for the, the original all too much. I don't think it was a fantastic movie, but it was how they made it was interesting. The story that was told was interesting and how they went about telling that story, which I appreciated. Now, what went behind the remake of this film was it felt like a cash grab. There was nothing other than other than the story, the, the, the few story elements that I did find interesting and entertaining and, I guess, refreshing even. I mean, that's all it had. The rest of it felt like a run-of-the-mill, run-of-the-mill kind of slasher horror gore fest where there really wasn't really anything else for me to grab onto. And that's it. I... I'm not trying to make you change your rating. I'm just, it's surprising that you're taking, I mean, after everything that we've watched and how terrible it has aged and how, uh, and even given the appreciation of watching the Never Sleep Again documentary as a companion piece to the films and understanding the age of certain themes and stuff like that, I mean, this this is a perennial slasher film, and it How does did... what it purports to do, which is so slash. just so so. In your opinion, the movie does what it sets out to do. Now, it, it I don't care if you like it. <laughs> That's the thing. I don't. I I just didn't. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't, and again, this is coming from somebody who is not a big fan of the franchise. So I'm not, I'm not like, you know, I'm not, I'm not being jaded by anything. You know, I'm not being, you know, persuaded to look one way and not the other due to this franchise. I mean, most of these slasher franchises, I feel that way. It's just the, I mean, it, it just felt more run of the mill than something fresh and excite not exciting but fresh and in and interesting i guess 
Well, then let me ask you this, because it's not, I, I guess I am taking it from the standpoint of something that is already not supposed to be fresh and exciting, because fresh indicates something that you haven't seen before. This is, quite frankly, the ninth entry in an existing universe. So there there can literally be nothing fresh about it. This is basically just trying to take the story, bring it to its roots, and update it so that people who were born 30 years after the fact have something to watch. But the experience can be fresh. The feeling of it can be a refreshed feeling. Not necessarily the movie itself is fresh. But when, I mean, when it comes to a really good horror film, you know, you sit down, you watch it, there is talent behind the camera. There is talent in front of the camera. And the story itself makes sense and is interesting or, or slash entertaining. Because this movie has to be entertaining for me to like it in its own way. And there's stuff I, I have to appreciate about it. And there is hardly anything I appreciate it when every time Jackie Earl Haley as the demonic Freddy Krueger or whatever is on the screen, I just couldn't help but feeling that his screen time got, you know, it was a waste. Other than when he was playing the human Fred Krueger and they were kind of doing that backstory, which again, I thought was interesting. And honestly, that aspect of it is what the original was missing. Is that kind of more, uh, I guess, human approach to that character? Well, I don't know. I just feel like you're... I feel like your mindset is coming from a standpoint of setting it up for failure versus enjoying it for what it is. And based on the previous content that led up to this, I... Um, you know, I, I, I'm just, I, I'm just not looking at it at the same way, and so I'm just trying to get into your head and understand, um, and, and trying to understand it. I'm, I'm trying to understand because it's, it's just not jiving for me. But apparently, it's not going to, and no. you know, there's just nothing that we can do. But at least it was a half-hearted attempt at an argument for the first time in like. 46 episodes so that's good right too bad it was this movie <laughs> no i'm kidding you were you were, you were you were all looking forward to sicario were you <laughs> you know i kind of but i wouldn't have cared then because i just liked the movie too much and yeah see okay the, so a movie that as long as you like it enough you don't care what anybody thinks I, I would think that you would feel the opposite. Like, no, I do you, care. It's just you know. it's it's if somebody just really doesn't like it and they have their reasoning for it. Okay, now if it's something really stupid, then that's when I have an issue with it. Like if somebody if somebody can if somebody can sit down and rate a movie and say that they absolutely thought. Something was a piece of shit. Oh, I thought Schindler's List was a piece of shit because of its subject matter, and it was too depressing, and I walked out of that movie theater not entertained, just very depressed. It, okay, so you don't like the subject matter. Fair enough, but there was nothing about that movie that you enjoyed. 
the 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 filmmaking, the cinematography, the music, the acting. So that is what that that is what I have a problem with. People can have their opinions, but it is all within the detail. It's within the reasoning. It's if uh, they're very close-minded. It can't look outside of that box. Is where I have an issue. Hmm. Well, then I guess that is that. And that's okay. <laughs> so, next. Oh wait, we still and we still have one more. Shit. All right. So real quick, <laughs> never sleep again. Elm Street Legacy. I'm giving this one four point two five, mainly because I felt like it took a little bit too long to get going, and then it couldn't apply the brakes at the end fast enough. Um, I felt it was probably maybe. Uh, 20 30 minutes too long all the way around but as a companion piece for watching these films or if you're a super huge freddy fan and you've already seen all these films you are going to love it if even if you've never seen it but you're like me you've never sat down and watched them with a critical eye from start to finish no interruption but they've been in your life you already know everything about them you've watched movies in the background you've seen the enough pieces you can put it all together you will probably get something out of this too. So for me, Never Sleep Again, Elm Street Legacy, 4.25. Tim, closing remarks on that? Yes, this is a 4.5 out of 5 movie for me. I thought it was very interesting. And one important thing that I took out of this real quick is that Nightmare on Elm Street is a product of the current trends in pop culture and films geared for the youth. And this is why... We will and can't and should never have a uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movie that's totally like the original movie. Because the original is a product of 1984 and not, say, 2010 or 2015. The idea of trying to do something different is a good thing. You don't want to be stuck trying to recreate something that you cannot obviously recreate. And I think that's kind of the, what happened with most of the sequels after the first movie is that it just kind of became a product of its own self, which was also a product of the current pop culture trend. So yeah, 4.5 out of 5. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Cool. All right. Well, the movies for next week are going to be Goosebumps, Crimson Peak, both of which are in the theaters, and on Netflix, 1986's House which is a interesting comedy horror film, as it were. So, I believe that brings us to the end of the movies and to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! Alright, well the music you've been listening to for our segment intros has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are of course the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can also climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that is your heart's desire. And, of course, you can always follow us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Benicio Del Toro, I get to say this. I don't see the world completely in black and white. Sometimes I do. Take care, cinephiles, and we will talk to you again next week. Bitch.
Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.